0: Genetics Playback, episode number 35.
1: Hey, all right! Welcome to the Gen X Playback Show, your favorite show about the '70s, '80s, and '90s. Thank you, Kip Winger. We are the Brothers. High. I am Scott, and I'm Sean, and uh, Kip. Uh, you know, that's not a bad intro there. I, I think I'd like to do that more than once. I, you know me, <laughs> I'm, I'm all about that. That's actually my favorite Winger song. So we want to we want to give a, a special thanks to Kip Winger's hometown of. Denver, Colorado. Thanks for listening to the Gen X Playback Show. Mm -hmm. Kip, um, a guy who was not, when he first got his career started, Kip wasn't known as a pretty boy frontman of a rock band. He was actually a very well-respected session musician as a bassist. Played with on many albums and toured with Alice Cooper before he even formed the band Winger. It's a guy that you know, when you when MTV got a hold of him You know, because he was a handsome guy they, they really brought him front and center But the guy brought a lot of musical credibility To to Winger And I think Winger's one of those uh, hard rock bands That probably doesn't get as much a, a love and appreciation for How talented they actually were So, trivia
0: question for you What is the first song That Kip Winger ever received a writing credit for? Mmm it was during his studio musician days before the band Winger. Was it an Alice Cooper song? Nope. Oh, wow. I, I don't know. It was off of Kix's Midnight Dynamite. Oh, that's
1: right. I did hear that. Bang, yes.
0: bang, balls of fire. I Kip did. Winger gets a writing credit. And it's a Bo Hill produced album. That's right. And Bo Hill was the reason Kip kind of got into the business. I mean, there was a connection in Denver. Right. And so, you know, Kip was a kind of li- this prodigy on the uh, you know on the bass and uh, Bo started working with him started using him
1: a lot mm-hmm. and that kind of that was the the first time you'll ever see Kip appear in an album. That's right. I did I did come across that reading about Winger, um, but yeah, that's yeah of all things, kicks from uh, from around here in in uh, Maryland. So. Kicks
0: who just played their final concert. Yeah. You know, they uh, they just retired. I know this is this is a podcast about Kicks, right? <laughs> yeah, but they um, they decided to wrap it up. There is some health problems in the band, and they went out on top. There is the uh, an annual festival close not too far from us, uh, there in Columbia, Maryland, mm-hmm. at the Meriwether Post Pavilion, the M three concert, and you know Kicks. Was a band when they kind of had their comeback um, about two thousand eight, I think, is when they kind of reformed and went out again. And they they would sell out clubs, mm-hmm. and they you know they were pretty popular. They were popular on the cruises, but they would always headline a night at the N three festival. You know there would be these big, other big acts, but they would headline why because they're so big in this area.
1: Yeah, and what, what's the uh, heavy metal uh, festival that's down? Is it in Oklahoma? Rocklahoma. Rocklahoma. Rock-lahoma and, and they played that. That, they, was the, that was their third to last concert, I think. Yeah, and, and I heard they still really sounded excellent. And that's part of the reason why they wrapped it up. So they had uh,
0: Jimmy Chauvin, the drummer, had a heart attack. I mm-hmm. guess he technically died on stage, and then they had to revive him. Um, Brian Forsyth, the one guitar player, had a stroke, and Steve Whiteman said that his voice has been going. And that he's, you know, he said he used to have a four octave range. And he's embarrassed now. I guess he's good. He says, he's, you know, he's, he's okay.
1: But he's not what he was. I know we talked about it in previous episodes that, uh, you know, in recent years, I know Sean has gone out to see some some bands in concert. And Amy and I have gone out and seen some bands in concert. You might not get another opportunity to see some of these bands again. Right. So if you have an opportunity... And you want to go see him? Go see him because it might be the last time. I know, for uh, for Amy and I, we went and saw Aerosmith in Philadelphia. I talked about it here on the podcast, and then he, uh, Steven Tyler did two t- two tour dates, and then you know has now to take a month off because of his throat. Mm, and okay. So he had to. They have to postpone a lot of a lot of a lot of cities and a lot of dates, unfortunately, but. These guys are getting to that point, you know, it's like we're none of us are getting any younger anymore. Right. I found that
0: out um, a few weeks ago. Uh, As you know, I I went up to Maine and I I thought I was going up for a a nice hike. No, I went mountain climbing (laughs) with people that were, you know, 20, 30 years younger than what I am. And, you know, of course, the competitive nature is you got to keep up with them. So uh, I, w- I went and I uh, I, I climbed uh, to the top of Mount Katahdin, which is the highest point in Maine, and it's the last stop on the Appalachian Trail. And I tell you what, uh, I think my knee still hurt, and it's it's been about two three weeks since I I made the trip, and I I was when I I did it. And I came down, and I looked around. Well, a lot of the times when I looked around, I'm like, "There's nobody my age up here." <laughs> it's like I'm I'm the only one, and
1: yeah.
0: it's like, and I, and I felt it. So you know, we all do age. Uh, I think it's good to try to still stay young and and be
1: active, but you know, it, it, age is going to catch up with all of us. Sure. Well, um, this particular episode. Now we're at episode number 35, and. We are, what Sean talked about in last week's episode with regards to uh, assembling bands, and it kind of got me thinking, and the fact that we've had some, some really good, consistent uh, viewership down in in Australia, and there have been a lot of really good acts that have come, you know, we were, I think I was talking about ACDC, mm-hmm. and obviously it's going to be a part of this episode as well, but listening to a band like an ACDC and just the sheer catalog of music that they provided over the last 40, 50 years. And it got me thinking that, you know, there really have been a lot of good acts from the country of Australia that have gone into the US. And I know for you folks that listen down in Australia, what we're going to talk about tonight is really just kind of covering the tip of the iceberg for musicians that come from Australia. But what I wanted to focus on is because we're, Sean and I are here in the States, the United States, and we really only, we have what we've been exposed to in terms of Australian bands. I thought it would be fun to take an episode where we kind of point out some of our favorite songs from the Gen X era of bands or singers that have come from the country of Australia. Yeah, no,
0: I, I, I as I had mentioned when you brought it up, I already kind of had a list ready to go. I, I ended up adding more to it and kind of tweaking it. But I always did kind of have a running list because uh, you'll hear some of the bands that we you know, talked about in our previous episode um, where the, um, they were they, they feature prominently. I mean I'm sure some of the you know we're going to have a lot of the same bands um, with this. you know it was our episode on siblings. Mm-hmm. So I don't know maybe there's something going on in Australia where siblings you know
1: tend to tend to form these bands together. I, yeah, I noticed that because a lot of the groups that we talked about in our si- favorite sibling bands. You know, there are quite a few we're going to talk about again yeah. in this episode. So, right. it, I think I think you're right. I think there is something there. But a lot of bands over the years start out with you know, brothers, or you know, there's multiple members. You know, like the Beach Boys. You know, the mm-hmm. Beach Boys had multiple family members in there, but eventually, you know, everybody starts to go their separate ways. But it seems like the Australian groups have a tendency to stick together, and there's not as many lineup changes as maybe there would be with some bands like from the West Coast of the United States.
0: Right, that, you know, that's a good point. And, it, you know, I was listening to an interview with uh, Angus Young of ACDC. You know, he's talking about his brother Malcolm. And, um, you know, they were very close. And, you know, Malcolm, of course, passed away. He had he had dementia. And it was, you know, kind of sad how he, he dwindled away. But, you know, as Angus was recalling growing up and his brother, because Malcolm's older and Angus was the youngest, I think, of eight children i think there were seven boys and, right. and one sister and he was the baby mm-hmm. and I, you know i sometimes forget how young angus was when acdc started out I mean, right. he was was he 16 15 16 years old when in like the early days when they started yeah cuz malcolm had just finished school i think you know malcolm might be 20 or so you yeah. know 18 19 20 and you know he's he's got uh, angus but you know angus Gave Malcolm a lot of credit for, you know, basically he was his big brother and he, he is the one that got him into music. He's the one that got him his, helped him get his first guitar. And he, he said he bought him the best amplifier he ever got. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's just what he did. And he always promoted him. And he said that he went down to the, uh, the music store and, um, that he was like, you know, play, Malcolm was trying different instruments and, and they said, Oh, you know, I got a brother, I want to bring him around. Like, oh, does he play? He gets way well, better than me. And he gets mm-hmm. and the interviewer said, Well, that's such a nice thing for your brother to say about you. And but, you know, Angus, you know, just was spoke spoke glowingly. And, you know, we kind of talked about how at least both of our our number one sibling band was Van Halen mm-hmm. and that the Alex and Eddie Van Halen, that that unity that they had, you know sustain them for a lot of years and i think that was true at least with acdc and some of these other australian bands that we'll talk about
1: yeah and i think it's important to, to mention that since malcolm has passed on his replacement is also from the family stevie is stevie's the nephew yeah right and so i i think that's that's you know important to note that a big family like that and that there is there's a little bit of the togetherness there there's i think that's that's speaks volumes for, for somebody that, for a band that and a family that have been in the entertainment business for so many years that they can, uh, that they can you know, pluck one of the other members of the family to step in and, and continue on. So, right.
0: That, but not all my artists, if I just say most of my artists probably are not uh, siblings, but you know. Sure.
1: Well, why don't you go ahead and get started? I think what we'll do is uh, we're probably going to have many of the same names out there, but so go ahead and and put your list out there and, and and see if you play along at home folks and see if if maybe we uh maybe we forgot somebody or if we if we hit all the uh, touched off on all the checked off all the boxes for for your Australian bands
0: okay, so I'm going to start out with a band that I, I know they were much 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 bigger in Australia than what they were in the u s so i'm going to play you what was the biggest hit i um this was this was a, a, a big hit on M T V. There's the chorus, and now, you, you, for those of you who might not have remembered, the name of the song is Electric Blue, and it's by the band
1: Icehouse. Yeah. The lead singer, Iva Davies, this album came out in 1987, and this song was co-written by John Oates from Hall & Oates. Oh, see, I didn't know that. Oh, really? Okay. I did not know that. Yeah, he, John Oates actually approached Iva Davies about the fact that he was a fan, that he really enjoyed their music, and so him, uh, John, and Davies... Ended up getting together and coming up with this song, and John had said if if Icehouse had decided not to record it, that he was going to do it for the next Hole in its album. I kind of remember when
0: this song came out—a little bit of hype, mm-hmm. you know, for a band that I didn't know anything about, and they weren't—they weren't young.
1: Yeah, they've been around for a while, and and I'm sure with our listeners in Australia. Will probably tell us that they're probably around for a good ten years before the song hit. Right,
0: right, right, and I I think a lot of the times, you know, we, you know, we'll talk about some of the other artists that, you know, that we would have known, you know, that were the pop artists that tended to be a little bit younger. But this band came out, and I remember when that song hit MTV. I I didn't really hear it on the radio at first. It definitely was an
1: MTV release, sure. And but it with it coming out in that 1987 early 1988 time frame that for it really did fit in very well with a lot of the popular music that was at that time right and from the fact that i have it down as going to number seven on the u.s billboard chart i oh, sure. where sure peaked That okay. So i can it believe was, that. it was a very popular very heavily played song right okay
0: so that is ice house with electric blue now I might as well get this one out of the way. You know, Scott and I spent a lot of time kind of uh, setting up this band of brothers. And this is ACDC, the, the aforementioned young brothers, Agnes and Malcolm. Um, not with an Australian lead singer this time. This is with Brian Johnson. Right. Brian, who's out of Newcastle, England.
1: Right, and they had, uh, you know, Bon Scott was part of the original group. You know, unfortunately he died, passed away, and they had to come up with a replacement. And it was actually at the urging of Bon Scott's family. Right. They wanted them to to go on because I guess Bond had written some songs for the new album, and that the the parents didn't want it to just to go away. So they wanted his legacy to kind of go on, and that's why CBC found Brian Johnson and carried on. Was it the recommendation of somebody that they found Brian? Yeah, by Bon Scott. Yeah, okay. It was by Bon. Okay. I mean
0: that's the so Bon Scott one night went and saw Brian Johnson play in concert and. I guess brian just put on this he thought incredible show and it turned out i think he had appendicitis (laughs) and then he was rolling around on the floor in pain and brian thought it or bontha was part of the act there you go but anyways i guess i guess they you know that's the legend but you know i guess they did kind of hit it off at one point they and you know bond came back and and the the young brothers said that bon was always like oh yeah
1: you know anything ever happens to me that that's the guy you should get that he he'd fit in here perfectly and he certainly did i mean he did he, he got what the legacy of the band was up to that point, and when they got Mutt Lang in and, and made the Back in Black album, it's the second best-selling album in the history of music. So
0: It is. And so part of the reason I went with Money Talks, and this is off the Razor's Edge album, which was a, a comeback for them. So this came out like 1990, mm-hmm. where they kind of had fallen on hard times. You know, they they were... They were riding the wave up in 1979 with Bond and Highway to Hell. And then they went from that to Back in Black, as you just mentioned, one of the biggest albums of all time. And then For Those About to Rock was a huge album as well. Mm -hmm. But then taste kind of changed. And ACDC, at least in
1: America, kind of fell out of favor. They did. And they came out with the soundtrack album. It was a little different. It was like a concept album for a soundtrack it was called uh, Who Made Who, and that came out in 1986. And that was off the Maximum Overdrive. That's yeah, that for was, that was movie. the movie. Yeah, yeah. So they, they like Stephen all the, King movie. It was, and they did all the music for that movie, and so I mean, there was a little bit of just a little bit of success, but in terms of chartable music, um, you know, ACDC was never a, a, none of their singles were ever going to hit. I don't think the U.S. top ten. Right, So they, they were not known as, as a band that was going to, um, you know, dominate the, the, the U.S. Billboard charts. And, you know,
0: they probably were still doing well with concert sales. Mm-hmm. You know, they were touring. You know, they, they had a loyal fan base. But as far as getting played on MTV or getting
1: played on anything other than rock radio, it wasn't going to happen. But I remember when this video came out, it was MTV made it paid a little extra attention to it because it was a good song yeah and acdc hadn't had a song like this come out in a while right right Uh,
0: you know thunderstruck's the one that still probably gets played the most but that was the one at the time that i probably preferred Mm -hmm. now here's a here's another band that believe it or not were they these guys they sound completely different than acdc but they came up with acdc through the club circuit in australia okay they were good friends so um I'll play this band here and this uh, will sound nothing like the previous song.
1: Used to be so easy to be your lover Glenn Shorrock. Mm Mm-hmm. We wandered through the days like
0: they had
1: no end But now that you are gone, I'm undercover I just can't think about you as a friend Take it easy
0: on me, should be easy to see I'm getting lost in the crowd, hear me crying out loud Want you to know I know that you have to go. It's all up to you, but whatever you do, take it easy on me. So that's the Little, Little River Band. Yeah. Take it easy on me. I will kind of let that play in the background, you'll be able to hear some of the really good harmonies that this band came up with.
1: Yeah, and the Little River Band. I didn't the the '70s albums, which is funny because I play their debut album. I, I found it on vinyl at a um, flea market, and it's one of the albums that if if I'm sitting at home on like a Saturday afternoon and I'm I don't want the TV on or something, I find myself between this one and Christopher Cross. Okay, kind of the same type of sound. Sure, uh, but this is one of my favorite albums. Just put on and let it go. And the, um, you yeah, know, the, the debut album, Little River Band, is something I didn't appreciate as a kid. Right. But really appreciate now. So what year would that have been? 77, 78. Because this song's 1981. So this was probably Sherrock's last album before he was replaced. Yeah.
0: It's right about that time, yeah. Because he's sharing uh, lead singing
1: duties with Wayne, I forget. Way- Wayne Nelson. Yeah, Wayne Nelson. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because it's funny that the the song that I actually picked is from 1981, and that's a Wayne Nelson song. Okay. So uh, that's the one that I like. But Glenn has, has I think, one of the best voices ever. Glenn has a very, and we talked about it in other episodes, and it's one of those voices that when you hear it, you immediately know it's him. It's a very distinctive-sounding voice. And, uh, you know, the Little River Band they were very popular for a reason and like i said i was probably a little too young to understand the, the 70s stuff like um you know that they that they came out with but as a as they started to get a little bit older I, the song i liked that i'm gonna play is probably a little bit rockin okay but i come back to this to me this is quintessential the Little River Band sound. This is what I like to listen
0: to now. Mm-hmm, uh, exactly. From then. This, so that's why this one got selected by me, because I, I really enjoy this song. Still do. It's, you know, I I didn't tell you. I started watching that documentary you told me about, about uh, the Yacht Rock. Okay. And? and? so oh, I'm, I'm, I'm hooked. I mean, <laughs> that's kind of probably why I, I picked the Little, Little River Band. I don't think you can have a, a list of artists that came out of australia that were popular in the u.s and i'd have them on a list oh sure because they and and also you know one of the reasons i picked this song was in 1981 i would have been very familiar with that song on the charts
1: right so that
0: kind of goes back to my uh, my you know junior high days sixth grade junior high around that time uh my next artist uh is one of the biggest artists to ever come out of australia Just a, uh, a, you know, we're talking In Excess mm-hmm. You know, it's the very distinctive voice of Michael Hutchins right there But you got the rest of the band chiming and we, we talked all about the, the, the Ferris Brothers mm-hmm. and their involvement um, with this band You know, one of my favorite bands from the 80s
1: Oh, absolutely And we actually have our first song that we picked uh, I picked the same song Oh, for, I can change ages. it, I have another one No, 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 that's <laughs> fine Uh, this whole album kick that came out in late 1987 and pretty much ran all the way through the year 1988 because when this song was released in the US we're in the summer I remember this song being played a lot at the water slide that we used to work at yeah and it was just a it was one of those summers that um, I just remember it being on the radio all the time this and then never tear us apart Mm -hmm. comes out immediately after and it's probably the peak i would say the peak of the album for in excess at this point when this when the song is is in there because they're right in the middle of all their singles being released and this was if if it wasn't number 1 on the on the US album chart it was pretty close up there at this point well this song feels like summertime to me and maybe it's because we worked at the water slide when it was
0: popular but it just has that that bouncy poppy happiness of summertime
1: it does and but it just shows how deft the the band is at being able to come up with different sounds. Like, you know, when you listen to a, a song like Never Tear Us Apart, it's so completely different than this. To me, this is a song that if I'm doing, uh, you know, like an 80s party with my friends or having like a class reunion, this is absolutely a song that I would have played because so many of my friends in school identified with, with the band at this particular time when we were in high school. Right,
0: right. So I've, I've never grown tired of this song, and if anyone really wants to understand what it was like back then when this song was popular, go on YouTube and look for the live concert footage of Live Baby Live when they performed this song in Wembley. Okay. In front of a packed Wembley Stadium. I think the whole stadium was bouncing. And I, he, I can believe it. The, the, the kind of the pit in front of the stage there's this wave that's just going on of, of just nonstop bouncing. And to me, it kind of really takes me back to that moment. So anyways, that's In Excess with New Sensation. Okay, so that takes me into my my next artist. One the, here Here's one of the many artists that were much bigger in Australia than in the U.S. We get a little taste of it, a little slice. They they had a moment of popularity. Uh, certainly not like the the long-time, you know, huge act that they are in Australia, but in the US, uh, our next band, which is going to be, and I'll I'll play it first and, and see if our listeners can recognize it. This is Blue Sky Mine by the band Midnight Oil.
1: Yeah. Midnight Oil really for a band that had been around as long as they were and, and I read the backstory on the band, they again it's another another band that had been playing in Australia for over a decade. And then they come out with this album, Diesel and Dust, and it just really explodes on the U.S. market and does very well. Part of it has had to do with MTV. You know, MTV at that point was very influential, and if they embraced a, a well-done music video, it could make or break a career.
0: Right. Now, this uh, Blue Sky Mine is off the album Blue Sky Mining, which mm-hmm. was 1990. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it's at the tail end. Yes. You know, so I, I, I don't know if kind of the success that NXS was having helped with it at all you know kind of break them in this country i i don't know it's they, they definitely had kind of a a political sound
1: to them oh well, they were definitely socially aware of right things that were going on that was the whole the whole concept of of the 87 album that was a uh, protest basically a protest album for the aborigines down in the uh, in australia
0: because isn't Peter Garrett, doesn't he serve as a politician right now?
1: He ran for office and he got elected, I believe, as the Minister of the Environment for okay. Australia. Okay. Yeah. So,
0: it, it was It was at a time where we're kind of coming out of of the 80s where, uh, you know, some people might have criticized the 80s, some of the lyrics that they weren't super deep, where it was all just about being happy and throwing parties. There's There's some credibility to, to that i mean you know it's, we played winger at the beginning hey hey
1: uh, you know it's can't get enough but to your point right around the time beds are burning comes out yeah. is right around the same time suzanne vega came out with luca right tracy chapman had come out with fast car right so i think there was a pocket of popularity reserved for people that were were writing songs that were a little deeper. Well, and that
0: was kind of my point,
1: is I think things are changing at
0: the end of the 80s and to the beginning of the 90s. See, it probably was a little more open to that sort of music. And, you know, I think, I mean, Midnight Oil obviously was popular. They were they were in heavy rotation, at least on MTV.
1: Sure, and I remember the the first time I ever saw the video was not on MTV. The first time I ever watched the video was at Rick's Place. Okay. and you know, we've talked about, Sean and I have talked about Rick's Place being a... A very popular local dance club for kids under the age of 21 that we used to go to when we were in high school, and that was they used to have this big giant wall, and they would show a video, and they would run a projector screen on the wall, so it basically you're looking at a you know a, a 15 by 20 foot uh, screen, and they would show music videos every once in a while, and and that was the very first time I saw it.
0: Right, and you know Peter Garrett was definitely a very distinct individual i mean very tall mm-hmm. and with a completely shaved head i don't even know if he had eyebrows i mean he was it just
1: was this this striking look that he had he did and he was one of the guys that shaved his head when people didn't shave their head and then all of a sudden five six years later and then everybody started shaving their head so uh, peter was a little bit ahead of his time and like you said it was it was a little avant garde for the United States at the time and I think it was uh you know we looked at it as cool. Like right. I remember me and my friends Did You like, wanted to shave your heads? No, we didn't want no. to shave our heads, but I mean just this whole look. It was it was more than the head. It was remember he he wore the, the felt hat, the big round felt hat and he had the black jean jacket on and it was it was it was a whole image that was associated with it and we we liked it we 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 caught it we 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 dug it as 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 me and my friends did right since midnight oil now i'm going to go in a very very different direction
0: with my next artist i don't have many from the 70s so i'm going to play one artist from the 70s she had a big career that spanned many decades but this is one of her first hits And that is Olivia Newton-John with If You Love Me from 1974.
1: Huge country hit. It was and, a huge and country it hit. it was a crossover, too, because it ended up going onto the U.S. charts. And hard to imagine that one of the biggest, at the time. Now, she, I think she kicked open doors for a lot of country artists to follow mm-hmm. who didn't necessarily have to come from the southern United States. Right. And I think what she did was she opened up avenues for like the Keith Urbans that would come later that would have huge country music careers uh, afterwards. Even somebody like an Eddie Rabbit, who came from you know New York City and ended up becoming a major country uh, music writer. But I think the fact that she was from Australia and was a huge country music singer that was kind of groundbreaking for for uh, Nashville and she's a she's a few years
0: away from becoming Sandy from Greece mm-hmm. and that's kind of a change you know i guess she she had some you know had a, her music career going on through throughout this time and but she eventually kind of leaves the country world and becomes more of a pop singer more of a
1: rock singer she wanted to do that and uh, i what i read about her wanting to do the, the part of of Sandy in Greece was she wanted to expand her kind of her musical horizon and, and have more of a palate than just be considered as a country singer. Right. And I think uh, her biggest concern was would people find her believable as a high school student? I think she was 28 at the time that they filmed the movie. Oh, everybody fell in love with Sandy. Oh, Come absolutely. On. Come on. She she was my first musical crush as a kid. Um, and, you know, and she ended up having a really, really long and successful career in the united states mm-hmm. for uh oh and spanning several different types of music i mean you we just heard a country song but you could say she was borderline disco and then she kind of even went into a pop rock mm-hmm. format in the in the early to mid 80s
0: yeah and so when i became aware of olivia newton john would have been with greece it's mm-hmm. the first time i even knew even recognized her in anything So i didn't even realize she had a whole country career
1: yeah, and I started listening to these like 70s, uh, like the local radio station would do the 70s on Sunday. And then also, I'm hearing all these Olivia Newton John songs. I'm like, I didn't even realize this. she probably had like five or six top 10 hits before Grease, which yeah, I had no idea that it, that was even out there for, for many, many years.
0: Yeah, and she came across as just such a likable person, like through her entire life. I mean, even up until her passing. I mean, she just always. You know, seemed like this this nice, happy person that, as a as a fan, you would not have been afraid
1: to meet on the street. Yeah, by every account, by those that worked with her, her image that she portrayed across the screen was every bit real. Good. And, and that was that was really because I mean, she came across as the nicest person, and everybody that worked with her said, no, nope, she was the nicest person that they ever that they ever worked with.
0: So. Right. So. Moving on from Olivia Newton-John, who's on this list, she's going to probably have one of the biggest careers, I think. But uh, our next artist kind of had a short, meteoric rise to the top of the U.S. charts. They didn't stay for very long, but at least for one slice, one moment, this was one of the biggest songs by one of the biggest bands in the world.
1: Who can it be now And this was This album Was released About a year After the initial release In Australia And that wasn't Uncommon For albums If it's If it was An Australian band It wasn't uncommon For an album To be released A while ahead Of it hitting The United Of the US market So we're a little bit Behind the times This This album Was Actually I think Created in 1981 And we got it Around 82 In 82 Sure and this was business as usual, mm-hmm. which ended up winning this band a Grammy for Best New Artist, and it was uh, it was all over the place. Right. This was the song that kind of kicked it off, but uh, you know, Down Under ends up going to number one. Uh, you know, the next single, mm-hmm. and it was yeah for for uh, for about two, three, two and a half to three year period with the subsequent album that came out, Cargo. Right. That was not quite as popular, but still very successful. Uh, you know, Men at Work really dominated the early part of the 80s in the United States. Well, you know, it was so
0: popular that I remember it being in junior high school. I should say this band was so popular, and as Scott and I went to a very small little little uh, Christian school called Locust Grove, and we our junior high consisted of four classrooms. Yes. Off to the wing of our our school, which was kindergarten through eighth grade, right? And the you would you would um, so the seventh and seventh graders would have two classrooms, eighth graders would have another two, and we kind of move around and have different teachers for different subjects. And I remember, because I was kind of known as somebody that was into music, mm-hmm. that Mark Weaver, you know, of course you remember Mark Weaver, walked by me in the hallway, he was a year behind me, I was in 8th grade, he was in 7th, and he held out the cassette tape and showed me that he had cargo.
1: <laughs> yeah, because it was very hyped because sure. of the success of business as usual. It was, um, you know, Men at Work was extremely popular. I remember staying up in the middle of the night uh, on like a Friday or a Saturday night because I didn't have school the next day. And the local radio station, FM 97, would occasionally play, like, a live album. And they played the live concert of Men at Work, and they did the entire business-as-usual album on stage. And they played it on the radio, and I taped it. I recorded it. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I, I remember staying up and doing that and recording it on my boombox, because mm-hmm. I had just gotten it. So not looking, the
0: same tape recorder that you recorded the famous mixtape with. No,
1: sir. I was upgrading in yeah. Technology. Yep. Right,
0: so this was about a year later This was a year later Yeah, yeah. see, yeah, Yeah. times have changed Uh, So there was Men at Work with Who Can Be Now Amazed that I'm not tired of that song after all these years Though it's been played a lot It's still something that I still enjoy and uh, come back to So uh, moving on to our next artist And as all these artists, I'm sure they're going to be on Scott's list And this is not a band that I would have necessarily been into when they came out I, I can appreciate them more, as I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to play like kind of like their late the the song that they had a big hit with later because I think you might have that one <laughs> and you, you, you might know me yeah and, and I don't want to double up so but this this is kind of and this is Air Supply with Lost in Love this is kind of when I became aware of Air Supply was sure. with this song this
1: would have been what around 1980 yeah right around there sure okay. yeah I, they were certainly popular in... And- Those of you Gen Xers that if you grew up in the Lancaster area, you may or may not remember that Air Supply did a concert in Lancaster at uh, at Longs Park. Really? At the amphitheater. Okay. I remember the radio station covering it and making a big deal about it because they, I guess they made a shout, you know, and those of you that listen to us on... FM ninety seven. That's oh, the worst accent, I know. I apologize. But they, they made a reference to the radio station, and, and they played it on the, on the radio. Right. So. This is the epitome of easy listening. Oh, sure.
0: And I hated this style of music when I was a kid.
1: But I kind of like it now. See, I remember, it might have been the Grammys or the American Music Awards, because the American Music Awards were just starting out with Dick Clark. They won some category it might have been like best new artist right i just remember, i can't and i can't even remember who they went up against but i just remember being so angry <laughs> that they won and which is funny because i'm i listen to this now and i like it sure it's to me it, it it's good i didn't appreciate it as a kid um but i just remember being so angry and i guess they were via satellite You remember how they would do that sometimes they couldn't attend the awards ceremony right so their air supply was uh, you know on screen via satellite and they would always have that underneath on the screen right
0: and and I kind of have done them a bit of disservice here you know not pointing out that
1: you know air supply wasn't
0: really a band it was a duo and it was uh, Russell, Russell Hitchcock and Graham Russell which I always thought was amazing the Russells they have the connection there yeah and they actually seem like pretty good guys
1: you know they I've seen do. them interviewed and yeah. they they're, they're pretty, they don't take themselves too seriously and they've been able to maintain a working friendship for the better part of 40 years right which again i i think there's more more to that than it just seems like i don't know for for us <laughs> american musicians or people in 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 music there seems to be a lot more breaking up than at least the australian ones that made it to the u.s right and i, I did double check the song came- 1979 okay so kind of the, you know the tail end it's
0: it's definitely in that that soft rock that that, you know, that yacht rock kind of uh uh time period where this is what was big and th- to their credit they had a career that that goes on for a little while they 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 didn't just they kind of they didn't just stay with what was happening at the time they kind of changed a little bit and, and continue to stay popular they
1: did and amy actually saw them in concert about i'm gonna say 10 years ago they were down here at the American Music theater okay and she saw it was they were on tour with Christopher cross right and she saw them together with her with her one friend with her one girlfriend and she said they still really sounded mm. great
0: good and you know one of the nice things about when you when you play that style of music is unlike kicks that we talked about where Steve Whiteman the lead singer says that you know he doesn't have the four octave range anymore and it's hard for him to hit the high notes right they're not singing high notes there yeah. So they're just kind of singing their normal voices, and as a result, you can have a career into your seventies.
1: Yeah, you can you can sing that song every night, and not sure, hurt your voice. You can be like Frankie Valli and sing it in your nineties,
0: and people will still come out and and watch you. Sure. So Air Supply, uh, a band that I appreciate so much more today than what I did back in nineteen seventy nine when that was on the charts. Uh, but you know, to my moving on to my next artist. This will come as no surprise to anyone, seeing as Scott and I did a two-part episode on a concert that Scott went to, <laughs> which uh, featured this artist. The only trick was coming up with trying to find a song that Scott isn't going to pick as well. So okay. I, I went kind of deep. Okay. All right. Okay. Good. To one, one of my favorite songs by, and this is Rick Springfield.
1: Well, you what your body's trying to say. I got the feeling that you're playing, and we're both going to win. And I think these angels are about to sing. I
0: get excited, just thinking what you might be like. choice. So, Scott, did he do this one in concert? He did it as
1: part of his, his medley uh, that he medley, had, yeah. a little montage? Yeah. Okay. It was very quick. I
0: mean, it was a hit. Sure it was. But yeah. it wasn't one of the biggest hits. Yeah. No,
1: I, this is a good choice. This is a good Rick
0: Springfield song. When this was out, I really liked this song. And this was off his follow-up album to Working Class Dog. This is Success Hasn't spoiled Me
1: Yet. Yeah. Yep. And I think... I think to credit rick in his development of his albums throughout the 80s he probably could have made another album like working class dog but and and had another couple of years of of success but he really did try and stretch himself as a musician right yeah i mean you listen to this and then you go from this to living in oz Mm -hmm. uh living in oz that was a grammy album, you know uh, nominated album You know Each one was a little Different Just a little Little bit of a different sound Even when he does The soundtrack to to Hard to Hard to hold mm-hmm. You know that, That's different Than what this is Right But yet You can still Connect the two Connect the songs together Right I, I, I really like this one th- This Is You know Rick was just
0: producing Hit after hit after hit During this era And this is like 1982-ish and I've, I've really have been drawn to that era for some reason. I, I don't know if it's the nostalgia
1: of junior high school, but I really like a lot of the pop music from that time. A lot of the pop music and I was just thinking about this too, not that long ago, is that it has a lot of the polish at, you know, it's kind of the, the success and the downfall of MTV at the same time is this still has kind of that pre-packaged uh, sound. You know, it still has kind of a rawness to it. it. Still sounds like you might hear it in concert, right? You know, once MTV started getting a hold of a lot of music, it started to get very homogenized, and there's no synthesizers in in that song. It just it still has to me has more of an edge to it. Not to say that some of the music that didn't come out after it was bad. I liked it for for the time, but. I think this has more durability to it.
0: I, I, we've mentioned a few times that a lot of these artists were much bigger in Australia than what they were in the U.S. You know, had a l- brief little careers. I don't know about Rick. I, I don't know that Rick could have been bigger
1: in Australia than what he was in the U.S. I mean, he was huge in the U.S. Yeah, he was by far... In that 1981-1982 calendar, those two years, I don't know of any individual artists that, because that was before Michael Jackson comes out with yeah. Thriller, Rick Springfield's probably at or near the top i mean billy squire maybe yeah maybe maybe Uh, but uh, that's that's an argument that you could make you he was as big as anybody i mean he certainly would be up there in your top three or four or five
0: there's very few gen xers that would not know the name rick springfield or be able to pick his face out of a lineup right so that's rick springfield uh i get excited uh gonna go to uh my next uh artist a band you know we we kind of in our previous episode about siblings, I played a song from this band's previous band, which had the two siblings mm-hmm. in them. And this is Crowded House with the Finn Brothers, Neil and Tim, and this song is Don't Dream It's Over. That's such a good line, try to catch a deluge in a paper cup.
1: Yeah. Yeah. These guys were
0: were good lyricists Yeah They really were It's just clever I, I don't know why yeah. It's a simple line But I just You know Always thought that was smart
1: Yeah Yeah Oh yeah
0: It's, it's
1: it's a great song. Yeah. Um and Crowded House, we're talking summer of nineteen eighty seven. You know, you're just graduated mm-hmm. from high school and this is a great summer album that got right. played a lot.
0: And you know, Scott and I keep talking about
1: the amusement park that we worked at at the waters
0: the water slide we worked at. And I think that in many ways it's the soundtrack of our lives was what was happening during those years and this was one of those songs that was in heavy rotation for a summer.
1: Absolutely, yeah. The at this point, uh, you know, we talked about hot hits out of Philly, ninety-eight uh, WCAU, and they were still doing that hot hits format. And this song was part of that hot hits rotation. Right. So you would literally hear it every hour and a half, maybe two hours. Mm-hmm. And I'm not kidding, folks. It was. They basically played 20 songs over and over and over again. Right. And it went nonstop, and that that was the format. And then when something left the the top 20 or 30 and got replaced by something else, then that song got put in. But you literally would hear the same song about every two hours. Right. You would. And you would get sick of songs. (laughs) Fortunately, this is a song that I did
0: not get sick of. This is a pretty song. It really is. So that is Crowded House with Don't Dream It's Over. Uh, Moving on to my my next uh band with brothers in it, it uh we talked in, in great detail about the brothers Gib. we have the bjs here and this is you should be dancing
1: So this is a song that can still be played at a wedding mm-hmm. and it's going to get a lot of people up on the dance floor. And what I remember about this song, obviously this is pre MTV is this, this specific scene in the movie where John Travolta out there on the dance floor and he's just taken over. Yep. Totally command performance. And it's to this song. It's where he was uh, dancing with, um, brand dresher <laughs> and also he's, the song comes on and he goes oh no 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 he likes kind of scurries her away and he clears the floor and he does and this is one of the great i think this is one of the great movie scenes of the 70s i think so because you can't hear this song and not think of the floor lighting up and this is one thing that as a as a dj that you always have to do is because the best part's coming up with the with the trumpets so we got to always tweak it a little bit make it higher as we get into it you kind of let it build up and then and then you kind of bring it down and then you got to bring it make it loud again for the trumpets
0: still good it's still good it's still good, you know. We when we talked about our our sibling bands, you know, Scott and I both went uh, with songs that were pre Saturday Night Fever. Uh, I think we both said that we didn't we'd like the pre falsetto mm-hmm. a little bit better, but that still is one of the quintessential songs, not just of the Bee
1: Gees, but also of the nineteen seventies. It is, and that and that is probably that Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. It was such a masterpiece. It, and I think people got tired of it because it got overplayed. Um, but when you, if you haven't heard it in a while, and that song haven't heard that played in you know, a couple of years, it, when it comes back, you, you're not tired of it because it's, uh, you know, the mu- the music on that soundtrack was very, very well done. They were, they were really at the top of their game when they made that album.
0: Right. Right. Okay. So now I'm gonna, you know, the the artists that I have now aren't necessarily as big as what the previous artists were you know that the even even down to um, you know the ice house I mean ice house while they weren't huge in the US they were still huge in Australia my next artist uh, is someone you may already have on your list and you probably do but I don't think that I can have a list that's complete talking about artists from Australia without having Natalie Natalie and Bruglio on a list and this is torn. Am I right? Is this somebody that's on your list?
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, I really liked the song when it came out. Yeah. And I think it, the accompanying video that came with it. Oh, yeah. Sure. It's very memorable. Uh, now, she made her early living as a young adult, as an actress. Mm-hmm. She was on a very famous Australian soap opera called Neighbors, which may or may not have somebody else on your list that was a part of that show as well. I don't know. Okay, it's possible. Um, I I didn't I didn't delve deep into those things. <laughs> but what I but what I do know is that she does a really good job of it's a, it's a very vulnerable song, mm-hmm. and she seems very vulnerable on screen when they're doing the video. Well, she's singing right to the camera, right,
0: right. And so as you're watching it, as a, you know, a young twenty year old might that you, you kind of think she's speaking to you in a way. I mean, that, and that's how it's shot. It's intentionally right. done that way, right and she you know is is a very pretty girl but also showing a lot of emotion and it's you know to me it's one of the more memorable
1: videos and songs of not just you know from australian artists but just the 1990s i i would have going to say the same thing i think it's to me it is one of the most memorable videos of the 90s yeah without a doubt so,
0: I mean, I, I really don't know a whole lot else
1: of her career other than this song, but I, I really liked it at the time. Well, what I do know about this song is that, at the time, what do you think this, what the highest charting on the on the Billboard 100, what do you think the, what, is, what this charted at? Well, you're selling it to me like it should be higher than what it ends up being. Correct. So I'm assuming it's going to be in the 20s, like 27. It actually charted at number 42. Get out of here. And here's the reason. Because it was never released as a single. What? And in in on a Billboard had a rule at the time, and this was, I believe, this was the song that caused them to change their philosophy. Okay. Because it was such a popular song. There was there was another chart that had come up, it was called the US Airplay, which was basically it wasn't taken off of sales, it was taken off of how many times was it played on radio stations? And according to that chart, it was number one for like 11 weeks in a row because it was a huge song in the U.S. Oh, yeah. And it caused Billboard because the people are like, why isn't this number one on Billboard? And Billboard's like, because it was never released as a single. We don't recognize it. So by the time they finally changed the rule, it I think it lasted two weeks in the in the Billboard 100 before it started to fade. But at that point, it had already been around for about three months so it, it's just kind of interesting and that was I believe that was the song that caused Billboard to change how they rated uh, you know whether it was a single or not it, okay. it still got put into Billboard
0: well that's, that's good that that, that uh, was changed because of that because you know as I have said it's, it's one of the bigger songs from the mid to late 90s 97 97 yeah yeah, yeah. alright my next artist I, I don't know if you have it, if you have him on your list or not because he kind of just sneaks into the Gen X era I do not. You do not have Keith Urban on your list? I do not. Well, this is 1999 um, with Keith Urban, and it's for, but for the grace of God. And it goes number one on the country charts.
1: Yeah. I can hear the neighbors,
0: again. So much like Olivia Newton John, Keith new Urban comes one over one and has, has big sweet success sweet in the country world.
1: Huge success. Yeah. Still he, has success today. He is one of the greatest recording country artists of all time. At this point now in his career, I think he sold, I'm going to say it's over 100 million records. Now, he did have a career in Australia before he comes over. I think he
0: got his original contract like in 1991. He has a bit of a career in Australia. He comes over. I think this might be his debut album in the US and of course he has a number one hit off of that. Well, he's about our age. Uh, he's a little bit older. He's, he's like... I think he's fifty-seven, fifty-eight-ish. Is he that old? Yeah, I think now? he's okay. like Rory's age. Okay,
1: um, but yeah, he's not. You know, he's he's a guy that's still in his fifties now. So he would have been in his in his you know late twenties. Yeah. By the time this this is released. Yeah, kind of like a Rick Springfield in a way, you know, because yeah. Rick,
0: you know, was around for a decade before he was able to hit it big, and that's you
1: know, Keith was similar, but he has not slowed down. And I'm sure, you know, he probably met some resistance, uh, you know, going to Nashville, being from Australia. Uh, but uh, people don't even think twice about it now because this is, this to me, this is every bit as much of a 90s country as, say, a Randy Travis or, or somebody along those lines. Right, right. I mean, he is,
0: he's right out there with all the rascal flash With some of the all-time greats. Yeah. I mean, he's he's a country music hall of famer. Sure. So we'll. I, I slipped two country songs in on this list. Look at you. So how about that? We, we don't do. We don't do a lot of that. So, are now, you a
1: peckin' or are you a grinin'? <laughs>
0: yeah, a little both. A little yeah. both. Usually peckin'. Okay. Seriously peckin'. You know, with the with the scowl, but then occasionally a little grin. Uh, my my next artist. I'm gonna throw a curveball. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take some liberties with the category, and I'm gonna su- maybe surprise some people.
1: I thought about this. Did too. you? So
0: yeah. you know the connection to yeah. Australia with Flea. Yeah. All right. So this is a this is the Red Hot Chili Peppers, a okay. band that I don't think could be associated more with Southern California. Oh, sure. But the Flea, you know, but Flea and Anthony Kiedis are you know, they're the two main guys throughout the entire history of the Red Hot Chili right. Peppers.
1: They are and. I think Anthony Kiedis is, is a good lead singer, but Flea is one of the greatest bass players of all time. He is, and and I didn't know he was born in Melbourne before I started researching this. I I had heard that, I think it was in Behind the Music from years and years back when VH1 did Behind the Music, that I knew he was born in Australia, and I think they he, they moved to the United States when he was about five. And he's, uh, you know, like four or
0: five years old, yeah, but that's kind of when he came over. So, but still still yeah. australian born
1: and he i if i'm if i'm not mistaken he has dual citizenship doesn't he uh could be not sure i think he had said he told his family that if he ever retires as a musician he wants to move back to australia full-time i think he has maintained a presence down there and he
0: so yeah i think he, he does have a home he, there. he does go I did, down i there. did hear that yeah. yes
1: yes that you know his, his family there yeah. he has a home there
0: See here, yeah, I thought I'd like surprise you with one, but you are <laughs> you are on top of that. So that's the uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, the the quintessential California band with uh, Give It Away with their Australian-born bass player, and in many ways the leader of the band is Flea. I mean, he's I think he's the face of the band.
1: Kiedis he he probably was more of the front and center earlier, but <sighs> Flea's so good at, at his instrument, you can't help it identify him as the strongest part of the band. Right. So
0: moving on from the red hot chili peppers, I'm gonna go down to my final three to close out my list. A band that you know was pretty big in the eighties.
1: Sometimes when this place gets kinda empty Sound of the breath fades with the light I think about The loveless fascination Under the milky way tonight Love of the curtain down
0: and that's the band, The Church, mm-hmm. with Under the Milky Way, which came out in 1988 and was off a very popular album called Starfish.
1: Yeah, and by the time it hit the U.S. charts, we're talking spring of 89, Yeah. by the time it hit there, and I, I, this one I can thank Amy for because her and her girlfriends loved, loved the song, and I don't know if I would have paid attention to it unless I would have been associated with them. Because they played the song a lot, very much in the kind of the same vein as The Cure at the time. Yeah, kind Kinda of. has the same dreamy sound to sure. it. Sure. Uh, but it was something I, you know, I really liked it when it came mm-hmm. out. One of those
0: songs, much like The Cure, which you're describing, you know, band like The Cure, that had songs where I, I never owned anything by those artists, but I appreciated
1: their music. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the church, I from what I read about them, is how respected they are in their home country. Okay. And that they, I, you know, it's it's kind of a shame that, I, I guess it happens around the world, and it probably happened all the time, but why it takes certain albums or certain bands so many years to kind of make a breakthrough? You now, Why couldn't it have been like, the beatles where they've been together as a group for like two years right you know a lot of these australian bands they've been down there for now a a band like in excess would be the exception you know in excess was they've been around for about five years i think when they finally broke through in the united states but a lot of these bands are like 10 15 years you know just
0: speculating but with the with the debut of mtv In Excess was a band that was made for MTV.
1: They sure were. I mean, you yeah. you had
0: the the songs. You know, we talked about how Andrew Ferris, you know, was the principal songwriter. I mean, Michael Hutchins wrote lyrics, but Andrew wrote the songs. Very poppy, very, very perfect songs for that. You know, Michael Hutchins, one of the most engaging lead singers of all time. Yeah. Yeah. A, a good looking guy, a guy who commanded, had a presence about him that was... You know, and also the rest of the band. The rest of the band, you know, was was engaging as well. So they were made for MTV.
1: Yeah, Michael Hutchins, uh, for for us Gen Xers, there were, aren't too many performers or, or lead men in lead singers in bands that could rival his magnetic personality. Sure. Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Bono. Mm-hmm. Sting. It's it's a pretty short list. Right. Of guys that had the charisma that he did on stage and he, he really wasn't it's, it's a shame that he died at such a young age because he was an all-time talent he was he was um but
0: you know the church did have their moment and so fortunately they did kind of break through at least for that one album now the the next artist i'm going to play at least in the u.s they're pretty much known for this one song and a little quirky song <laughs>
1: I had this on the list. Yeah? The vinyls? Yeah. I mean, come on, Sean. One of the funniest scenes in Austin Powers' <laughs> International Man of Mystery is when he does the strip teams for the Fembots. <laughs> That's and true. he does it to this song. Right. Right, and, that, and this song came out in 1990, so it's kind of like,
0: you know, it's, it's past the 80s, and I do remember them back in the 80s. You know, they, they would get the occasional video on MTV, but there weren't much of anything. Right, sure. And then they came out with this song, and it, for, I don't
1: know, a, a few months, was huge. Yeah, it's, it's a catchy song. I, I'm, I'm not saying just the words, because the words do grab your attention, particularly the chorus. But the song itself is a catchy, and it really perfectly fit in with that 1990 time frame, right?
0: And the, the Divinals were a duo. You know, Chrissy Amplett and Mark uh, McEntee were basically the, the Divinals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, unlike, you know, we talked about In Excess, where they're like an entire band. Right. This was basically a duo. So, uh, very briefly, uh, with the Divinals, now I'm going to play my final artist,
1: Um, At ease, boys. Likewise. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to go pure 1980s with this one. Oh, heck yeah. (laughs) This was the other part of the Neighbors soap opera. Ah. It's great, was
0: an actress. It was? Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> I was going to say I can play another Kylie Minogue song if, if this is one you already have selected. Well, I
1: did, but I'll find another one. Okay.
0: But you Kelly know, Minogue, I mean, she burst upon the scene. In, in the U.S., and, and this was what, like 1987-ish?
1: Well, this was one of the albums that I, that I talked about. Yeah, that it was 87. It was released in 87, but it really didn't catch on in the U.S. until the summer of 88, because I remember this song just starting to get major popularity around late July, August of 88, because it was me going into my senior year of high school. That's why it stands out to me, because... um my group of friends that the girls just absolutely love fell in love with the song, right and it was played all the time at, at, right in that where you starting school. So it would have been right around Labor Day, September was when it was right around when it was hitting number one and, mm-hmm. and becoming extremely popular. but it was it took a while for it to to actually gain popularity in the US, and they say a lot of it had to do with the music video that they shot. and again, you credit MTV there. Oh, yeah, because that's what I'm
0: picturing. You know, right now, as well, when I was playing the song a few moments ago, I that video just pops into my head, and it is what you would have thought of what was going on in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about that, you know, towards the end of the 80s, you could have some serious sto- songs and some some serious material. Well, that's not the loco emotion. Right. I mean, it's that's pure pop. It's it, pure fun. It is, and you think back to the video, The Big Hair, the the fashion that they're showing lots of color, lot, you know, v- everything's bright, everything's happy, lots of smiles. You know, Kylie has a big, very engaging smile. You know, perfect teeth. It's it's kind of what you would have drawn up if you're doing Johnny Bravo.
1: Yeah, she's kind of that perfectly clean cut image yeah. that that they were trying to present. And I I even remember in the music video at the very end you know, her family's there, like her parents are there, and I think other members of her family are part of that video shoot, and it's like, she's about as clean-cut and wholesome oh, yeah. as you as you could possibly get. Now, the image changes slightly as you go into mm-hmm. the 2000s. Sure. She, goes, she definitely goes for more of an adult, uh, and she has great success for it in the 2000s. But, yeah, at, at that time in 1988, she hit it right at, right at a perfect time.
0: Right, so that closes out my list uh, of artists that i think are of note that i really liked uh from australia i uh, i you know a couple artists that you know i mentioned that i i thought about didn't put on my list um savage garden almost mm-hmm. put them on that you know you know I, I made the exception with keith urban kind of slipping into the back end okay. of the 90s um you know they're they, i, I like them but i didn't pick them jimmy barnes i know he was really big in australia huge yeah and i debated that but I only remember him from that one video he did with In Excess. Remember mm-hmm. they did, this like, a, a Good Time Tonight? It was from the Lost Boys soundtrack. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I remember they were talking about, oh, yeah, Jimmy Barnes is really big yeah. in, in Australia, and he sings it with them. But I don't know anything else he ever did
1: other than that one song. Yeah. It was a good song, too. I remember that from the soundtrack. That was a good soundtrack. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's about what I, the only thing I remember Jimmy Barnes from. Right. And
0: that, so the, the only other other artists that I thought about poss- possibly putting on and I, I don't know. It's, it, it's the um, Australia's version of Nirvana, which would be Silverchair. And I thought you had said in the previous episode, let me backtrack, finish a sentence here. Um, in a previous episode, when we were talking about Oasis, mm-hmm. you thought it would be disingenuous for you to rank them higher than what you did because you didn't care for them at the time. Yeah. And I kind of thought the same way with Silverchair. Because I have said many times on this podcast, I wasn't that into grunge. Mm -hmm. And they, I can respect them, but they do sound kind of very similar to what was happening in the U.S. grunge scene.
1: Yeah, in Silverchair, just from what I, we just didn't know them that well here in the U.S., but they were, they were... At that time, they were arguably the biggest band in Australia when, when they were at their peak.
0: And I've talked to some people, uh, you know, people that I know that recommended them and that they, that was, a you know, the first Australian band that they came up with. But, you know, they would have been into that type of music. Sure. So, but anyways, thought about them. I, a lot of respect for them as artists. Like I said, I don't want to be revisionist with my history and say, oh, yeah, I was into chair because <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't.
1: But I still respect them. Okay. All right, well, Sean, thank you very much for your list. We'll, uh, if you want to pick a song and take us out for uh, for the end of Part 1, when we come back, we'll start things off with Part 2, and we'll cover the rest of my list. Going to be a lot of the same groups, but you'll get to hear some extra songs. We want to give love to, uh, to Australia in this particular episode. So our favorite songs uh, that Australia brought out to us in the U.S., and I'm glad you picked some of the ones that you did because, like, Rick Springfield mm-hmm. hadn't heard that one in many, many years. Good. Uh, very good example outside of his little medley, but I hadn't heard the whole song. Right, So, uh, cool. Yeah. I think this is, this is uh, one we're enjoying as we, as we run through it. So stay tuned for part two coming up here, uh, next time. Right.
0: And, um, We'll take you out here with with the Young Brothers. We spent a lot of time talking about them in the intro, so we'll we'll close it out with ACDCs for those about to rock.
1: So you're listening to the Young Brothers. We are the High, uh, the Brothers High, the High Brothers, whatever you want yeah. to call us. Uh, and we will talk to you next time for uh, listening to Gen X Playback. Thanks to Denver, Colorado, and all of you folks listening across the United States and around the world. Uh, tune in next time for part two. So for uh, for the Brothers High, I'm Scott and I'm Sean. We'll talk to you next time. See ya.